Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. I'm thankful for the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning, and I pray that God will use this time studying His Word to change us to be more like Christ. I apologize in advance for my voice. It's a little weak this morning, but I'm thankful for a, a good microphone to project it, even though it's weak, but you guys still have to put up with listening to it. So I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I want to start by doing a little review of where we are in the Gospel of John, as Pastor Dan alluded earlier this morning. It's been a while since I preached in John, and I just want to make sure we're up to speed with with what's going on in the book. And first, I want to say that John wrote his Gospel with the goal of demonstrating Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, so that people would believe in Jesus and have life in his name, John 20, 31. And so John writes about several specific signs that Jesus did to prove he is the Messiah. And chapter 9, which we're going to be looking at today, tells us about one of those signs. Well, at the same time that Jesus was performing signs and people were believing in him and receiving him, others, especially the religious leaders, were rejecting Jesus and opposing him. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a, a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And he did it on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders began to persecute Jesus. And Jesus then gave a robust verbal defense for healing on the Sabbath, and he claimed equality with God. Well, this infuriated the Jewish leaders even more, and they began seeking to kill him. In chapter 7, it's time for the Feast of Tabernacles, the um, most popular feast of the Jewish calendar. And so everyone was wondering, will Jesus show up? Will he come? Knowing his life is in danger. But sure enough, Jesus went to the feast, although he went privately so that no one even knew he was there. But about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and boldly began to teach. Many believed in Jesus because of the signs that he had done. And although the religious leaders were seeking to kill him, No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then on the last day of that feast, Jesus cried out in the temple that anyone who thirsts should come to him and drink and be satisfied. Once again, he's basically declaring himself to be equal to God. Just as you would pray to God and ask for rain, Jesus says to come to him and drink if you are thirsty and you will be satisfied. Chapter 8 continues the story at the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles. And there Jesus makes the declaration that he is the light of the world. He also made four bold statements about himself, simultaneously offering hope and judgment. Hope if you listen to him, judgment if you do not. His final statement was, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. The Jewish leaders question, how could Jesus say that? Is he greater than Abraham and the prophets who died? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus explicitly claimed to be deity. So the Jewish leaders picked up stones to throw at him. And Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Once again, they couldn't do anything to him because the hour had not come. And that's how chapter 8 ends. And that's now where we're going to pick up in chapter 9. This is a very tense time in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so as we'll look at today, there are three main sections in chapter 9. In verses 1 through 7, 
Jesus heals a man born blind. Then in the middle section, verses 8 through 34, there are four different verbal exchanges as people try to make sense of what has happened. And then the final section, verses 35 through 41, Jesus re-enters the story again, offering hope or judgment. So let's begin with the first point. Jesus heals a blind man. And let's start in chapter 9, reading at verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The timing of our chapter today John describes it very ambiguously here as he says that these events happened as Jesus was passing by. Presumably, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. Um, There's a close connection to chapter 8. We already talked about how in chapter 8, Jesus calls himself the light of the world, and that's repeated here in chapter 9, verse 5. Jesus says he's the light of the world. Chapter 10 tells us that that's taking place at the Feast of Dedication. And so we know that this story must happen sometime between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication, which is three months later. So somewhere between those two feasts. But the most important thing I want to say about the timing of these events is that Jesus is alive and well despite the Jewish leader's desire to kill him. They can't touch Jesus until his hour has come. We are very quickly introduced to this man who was blind from birth. The text does not give us an explanation how Jesus knew he was blind from birth, how the disciples knew he was blind from birth. It's repeated several times throughout the story. But the text makes a big point that this man was blind from birth, and I want to draw that out, that he was blind from birth. We also have a discussion very early in the text here in verses 2 and 3 about blindness and the relation to sin. The disciples ask Jesus why this man was born blind. Was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? The disciples assume, like most Jews of their day, that sin and suffering are intimately connected. And while it is true that all suffering is the result of sin— beginning with the fall in Genesis 3, it is not biblically accurate to say that every instance of suffering is a direct consequence of a specific sin. Think of examples like Job, Jesus, the Apostle Paul. I mean, we could go on and on of examples where suffering has no relation to specific sin. And here the disciples in their evaluation of this, they're really no better than Job's miserable friends and their conclusion on this. But Jesus insists that this man's blindness was not a result of his sin or his parents' sin. It was for another reason. Which leads to a discussion in verses 3 through 5 on the works of God. 
Why was this man born blind? Jesus very clearly says that it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus emphasizes God's sovereignty over all things, even this man being born blind. God is in control. He has a purpose for everything. We don't always see it. We don't always understand it. But we need to trust God and his plan. Pastor Brent talked about this last week as he ended the sermon on Genesis 50. How even the things that people plan for evil, God means it for good. We can trust that God is sovereign and good and wise. He is always working for his glory. And what he does is always right. Jesus shows a commitment here in doing the works of him who sent him while it is day, because night will come when it is no longer possible to work. Jesus is using language of, we must do the works of God, but really he's talking about himself and his works. And we can see that borne out even in verse 5 when he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Repeating that title, he gave himself in chapter 8. But Jesus, in the very next verse, verse 6, is going to demonstrate the truth of that statement, that he is the light of the world. And so in verses 6 and 7, we see Jesus healing the blind man. Now, it is amazing in these verses the detail that John gives in this healing, which is unlike many of the other signs that Jesus has already performed. When Jesus turned the water to wine, He just told the guys to fill up these jars with water. And then he said, we'll dip some of this water and take it to the chief of the the feast, the master of the feast. And it was the best wine that that man had ever tasted. But Jesus didn't do anything. He just gave directions and people followed the directions. Or when Jesus healed the official's son, the, the, the man came to him and begged him and pleaded with him, come to my house and heal my son. And Jesus sent him away and said, go home, your son will live. And Jesus healed him from a distance without touching him, without seeing him. From a distance, he was able to heal. Or even the man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, the man that was paralyzed for 38 years, all Jesus did was say, take up your bed and walk. And the man did. So many of the times Jesus' signs were simply speaking or giving people directions to do just normal things, and they would carry them out. But here, in this instance, there is a high degree of detail, and I want to draw attention to that. So look at verse 6. Jesus spit on the ground. He took his hand, and he mixed the saliva with the dirt to make mud. Then he spread the mud over the man's eyes. And he told him to go and wash at the pool of Siloam. We don't know how far away that pool was from where he was. But that's what the man did. He went and he washed. And he came back seeing. Why so many steps? Why not just say to the man, be healed? Or see? I don't think I can give you a definitive answer. But as I was studying through this text... There were two explanations offered in the commentaries that I thought were just bring such glory to God that I wanted to at least list them to you as possibilities. Some of the church fathers 
saw a connection to Genesis 2-7 when God formed man of the dust of the ground. Jesus used some of that dust to make eyes that were otherwise lacking. And John has already connected Jesus to the creation when in John 1-3 he says that all things were made by him and nothing was made that wasn't made by him. So maybe this is a connected connection of showing God's creative work and connecting that to Jesus. I love that. John Calvin suggested that the mud pack was designed to double the intensity of the blindness in order to magnify the cure. Rub some mud in his eyes. Make it harder to see. You think about Elijah at Mount Carmel. You know, when he was challenging the prophets of Baal, And he built an altar and he put a sacrifice on the altar. And then he asked that jars of water, jar after jar of water, be put on that sacrifice. So that everything was drenched and and setting water. And then Elijah called down fire from heaven. And the fire came down and consumed everything. Even the stones that the altar was made of. Showing the incredible power of God. I don't know if that's why, I don't know if that's why Jesus did that, but I thought, man, that is so good. I want to highlight his power. I want to highlight his ability and his work and creation. So I think that is worth mentioning as we look at these, these verses. But as this first section ends, Jesus drops out of the narrative until verse 35. Although the debate and discussion that follows is certainly centered around Jesus. So now we'll move to the middle section. There are four verbal exchanges about Jesus healing the blind man. What just happened? They've got to get to the bottom of this. So let's look at the first exchange in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So the first exchange is between the blind man and his neighbors or the people that knew him. And there are two responses to this man. So as it's happening in the text, he leaves, he goes to the pool of Siloam, he washes, he comes back seeing. Presumably he's back in the same place where he was begging before he was healed. So all of the people around him, the neighbors, those that knew him as a beggar, they're trying to make sense of this. And you see that some of them say, this is the blind man that we knew as a beggar. But you have others that say, no, it's not him, he just looks like him. And all throughout, the blind man is, keeps saying, I am the man. So they want to know, well, then how were your eyes opened? And his answer is, he starts with, this man called Jesus doesn't seem to know a lot about him. He does know his name. This man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, told me to go to Siloam and wash. I went and washed and received my sight. And they asked him, where's Jesus? He said, I don't know. 
So let's move on to the second exchange, beginning in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said that, he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The second exchange is between the blind man and the Pharisees. The neighbors, as a result of this healing, they take this man to the Pharisees. And at first it might not be clear, now what are they doing? But John gives us some more information now that we didn't know earlier in the text. We learned that it was on the Sabbath when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And we already know about all the controversy about Jesus. I mean, the religious leaders, they want to kill him. They've already made all kinds of threats and warnings about Jesus. And I'm sure about those who identify with him. And so they bring the man to the Pharisees. The Pharisees ask him, how did he receive your sight? And he recites it. And each time John tells this, it's getting a little shorter and shorter. He put mud on my eyes. I washed. I see. And once again, we see two responses to the healing. In verses 16 and 17, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So they're honing in on the fact that this is on the Sabbath, and they say, there's no way this man is from God. He broke the Sabbath. But other Pharisees say, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? I mean, it's obvious he has to be from God. Look at what he did. And they were divided. So they asked the blind man, hey, he did this to you. What do you say? And the blind man has a very short answer. He is a prophet. Now, for sake of time this morning, we can't really go back and trace it, but it's, it's really interesting and similar to what happened in chapter 4 with the woman at the well. When first time she identif- or talks about Jesus, she calls him a Jew, and she grows and grows in her understanding of him, and eventually she realizes that um, he is, must be a prophet. I mean, he knows everything about me. Um, eventually she, she recognizes him to be the Messiah. Here the blind man starts by calling this man Jesus. And as he has time to reflect on it, and he thinks, I mean, what has happened? He was blind from birth. He never would have, could have imagined this would happen to him. And so he, well, this, he must be a prophet. Must be from God. Which leads us to the third exchange. Let's look at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, 
he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. The third exchange is between the blind man's parents and the Pharisees. Since figuring out this whole thing with this man was proving to be difficult, the Pharisees are divided, even the Pharisees are divided, they think, well, let's, let's try a different tactic here. There, there might be another solution. Maybe he was never blind. So they call in the parents for questioning. And they ask two questions. First question, is this your son who you say was born blind? And they answer that question. They say, we know this is our son. And they said, we know that he was born blind. Okay, so this fact now is established. It's verified. This man was blind. Okay, we can't, can't go with that one. How are we going to explain this away? So they ask their second question, how does he now see? And, and, and the parents' response here is pretty amazing. If you think about what has just happened to their son, they say, we don't know how he sees now. We don't know who opened his eyes. I mean, they're really, really unwilling to answer. And it's interesting that even in their non-answer, implicitly they're acknowledging that someone opened this man's eyes. Something happened here. And they say, well, ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And in verse 22, we have a narrator comment that really helps us out on this. The narrator, who's the Apostle John, he jumps in to share with us what the parents are thinking. Why are they being so evasive in their answers? And it's because the Pharisees had already said, if anyone confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, he's going to be cast out of the synagogue. And so they won't speak up for Jesus. And surprisingly, they show no interest in finding out how their son was healed. I mean, if this was your son, born blind, presumably could be an adult now, and he can see, I mean, wouldn't this be of primary interest to you in finding out what in the world happened to your son? But by a quick point of application here, I wonder how often... Are we afraid of identifying with Jesus when we know that it is going to cost us? And as as time moves forward and and things change in our country and around the world, it it may cost more and more as time goes on. And so I just want to ask, are we afraid of identifying with Jesus when we know that it is going to cost us? Well, moving along, let's look at the fourth exchange in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, 
But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Here in the fourth exchange, it's between the blind man and the Pharisees again. And again, the Pharisees are needing to find a new tactic. So they come out and they say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now in this context, the Pharisees are essentially demanding that the man confess a wrong. In other words, they are saying something like, before God, own up and admit the truth. And the truth they are searching for is a confession that Jesus is a sinner. They are hoping that the blind man will cough up some more details that will help make their case that Jesus is a sinner. Now, I'm going to take a short rabbit trail because I think this is worth mentioning. But I want to talk a little bit about Jesus' sin, Jesus' transgression. Um, The sin that Jesus committed was a violation of the oral law, not a violation of Scripture. His sin was kneading, like someone kneading dough. You're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. And so when Jesus spit on the ground and took his hand and mixed the saliva with dirt to make mud, he was guilty of kneading. I thought that was kind of interesting. So I'm going to throw that in there. We're going to say it. We're going to get back to the story. So here, the Pharisees are just, they're pushing for this man to agree with them, that Jesus is a sinner, and to help them in that conclusion. So think about the extraordinary amount of pressure that they are putting on this man. I mean, he is isolated. I mean, clearly everyone else in the story is afraid of the Pharisees. The neighbors bringing him to the Pharisees, the parents unwilling to say anything. And here's this man And he is under heavy pressure, but he doesn't back down. Look at his response in verse 25. He doesn't cave to their pressure. He refuses to pass judgment on Jesus. He says he doesn't know if Jesus is a sinner or not. What he knows is that he was blind and now he sees. And so then they press him again. Well, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? And the the man's response is like, look, I've already told you what happened. He sees through what they're doing. He knows that they're just trying to figure out a way to explain this away and discredit Jesus. And he's not having anything to do with it. So he boldly stands up to them. And it's interesting to watch his theology develop out loud. Okay, he starts with talking about this man, Jesus. And then he, he comes to he has, must be a prophet. But look at, look at his theology as it's developing here in verses 30 through 33. He opened my eyes. God doesn't listen to sinners. 
God listens to people who worship him and do his will. This miracle is unprecedented. No one has ever heard of a blind man's eyes being opened. So his conclusion, he must be from God. That's what this man is thinking. And look how the Pharisees end this. They say in verse 34, you were born in utter sin. Again, the same theology the disciples displayed in verse 2. Clearly, this man was born blind. So either he did something terribly wrong or his parents did something terribly wrong. But there must be a reason that he was born blind. So they say, you were born in utter sin. Do you think you can teach us? And they cast him out. He is now an outcast in his own neighborhood, his own family, his own synagogue. The Pharisees are so intent on destroying Jesus and proving he is a sinner that they never even consider that one of the signs of the dawning of the Messianic age is that the eyes of the blind will be opened. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but I want you to listen to the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Again, we don't have time to look at them, but you might want to jot down these references as well. Isaiah 29, 18, and Isaiah 42, 7. These kinds of signs are evidence of the coming messianic age, and the Pharisees don't see it at all. They are just intent on destroying Jesus. Well, if the story ended here with a blind man, now able to see, but ostracized from his community, there wouldn't be much to celebrate about this miracle. But this isn't the end of the story. Jesus re-enters the story And brings things to the proper conclusion. So let's look at the last section now, and beginning at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus has something even better to offer this man. He begins by saying, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this title, Son of Man, declares all the power, glory, and rule of God that resides in the person of Jesus, the ultimate judge. We've already been introduced to this in the Gospel of John in 151 and chapter 5, verse 27. Or the prophet Daniel talks about this in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. But look how ready this man is. He doesn't know anything about the Son of Man. He doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. But he just says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's ready. And Jesus says, you have seen him. It's he who is speaking to you. And the blind man now sees for a second time. He says, Lord. He recognizes Jesus for who he is. He's not just this man, Jesus. He's not just a prophet. He is the son of man who came from God. He is Lord. He's the Messiah. 
And he says, I believe. And he worshiped him. And by way of application today, I just want to point out that, I mean, this is part of what we do every Sunday. We gather because we believe that Jesus is Lord and we worship him. So this man who was born blind now has physical sight and spiritual sight. He has spiritual life, eternal life. Look how it ends in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Jesus speaks judgment on the Pharisees. Jesus came so that those who could not see would be able to see, and those who see would become blind. And here Jesus is talking about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. The reality is that we are all born blind spiritually. And if we humbly come to Jesus, we will be given sight. Those who claim to have spiritual sight and won't humble themselves to come to Jesus are actually blind. Acknowledging our need is the first step in receiving sight. All who come to Jesus by faith will receive eternal life. Unfortunately, not all will acknowledge their need of a Savior. The consistent message of the Bible is this. God resists the proud but shows favor to the humble. Well, our time is up, and I want to end with three points of application. The first thing I would say is believe in Jesus. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That is the difference between the blind man and the Pharisees. In a total reversal of fortunes, The blind man has eternal life, and the Pharisees face the wrath of God. How about you? Have you humbled yourself before God, admitted your sin, and put your faith in Jesus? I would plead with you today, believe in Jesus. The second point of application I want to make is that our spiritual needs are greater than our physical needs. And every one of our spiritual needs can be met by coming to Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who says that if you are thirsty and come to him, you will be satisfied. And so I ask, are you regularly spending time with Jesus to know him and seek him as your greatest desire? Or do the cares of this world, the riches and pleasures of this life distract you? from pursuing Jesus. Come to Jesus. He will satisfy. And the third point of application I want to make today, I want to say don't despair when you face difficulties. The one who is needy is the one most likely to humble himself before God.
The one who needs nothing is most likely not to recognize his need for Jesus. As we reach the end of chapter 9, would you rather be the Pharisee or the man born blind? God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. Our God is sovereign. He is wise. He is good. We can trust him no matter the challenge. We can trust his plan. God is working in our lives. May we rest in him no matter what comes our way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through Jesus, your son. We are thankful that even though we are born blind spiritually, we can have sight by coming to Jesus, by putting our faith in Jesus. Father, what a great thought to think that the difficulties that we face in life and the trials that we face in life can end up being a good thing for us. Father, help us to trust your plan. Help us to walk with you. Help us to fall on Jesus and to cry out to Jesus, the one who satisfies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.